0: This is David Suiza. Welcome to my podcast. Today's kind of unusual because normally I have no idea where these conversations are going to go. I have a general idea, but today I have a specific idea of where this conversation is going to go because I have in front of me a terrific book called Scattered Among the Nations, and it's photographs and stories of the world's most isolated Jewish communities by Brian Schwartz, who's here in our studio with the help of Jason and Sandy Carter. Uh, Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me. So, 1999, you have this idea: I'm going to go around the world and find the weirdest Jews possible. How did that
1: happen? <laughs> uh, well, I think some of the guys seated in this room doing this podcast are among the weirdest Jews possible. So, I don't know if I'd <laughs> okay. use that title. But uh, Brian, they're calling uh, <laughs> Armando, our producer. is calling you weird. Huh? Right. I, it's only because he's a, good, a dear friend. Uh, I, uh, it's actually been almost 20 years to the, to the month since I got this idea one night. I was living in Spain, uh, during law school and I would go on the weekend to visit a community for Shabbat. I would go, you know, wherever I felt like going cause Europe is cool that way. And so if I went to Southern France, I'd pop into the synagogue in Avignon or in, you know, a, Vienna, wherever I was, then I decided I was going to go to North Africa for my spring break, and I got my Lonely Planet guide uh, and looked up Jews in the index to the in the North Africa guide, and there's you know five listings under Jews, and it and I went to this uh, page on um, the community in Jerba, Tunisia, which I had never heard of. Nobody told me about it in Hebrew school or at camp or in the Berith Youth Organization, but here I was. Uh, reading about this community that lived on this island in the Mediterranean, where they had 15 synagogues, they had the oldest Torah in the world. Uh, they had it was said the high priests of the Second Temple when it was destroyed, the Kohanim fled to this island and were still there. Their their, um, uh, their ancestors were still on this island, the Kohanim, and they brought with them one of the gates of the Second Temple and buried it. In the location where the Griba, the famous synagogue of this island, still exists today. So, I'm reading. So that's that's when you cut the bug. Yeah, I'm reading all this, and I'm blown away because nobody told me about this. And it occurred to me, as a writer and a photographer, maybe I could capture some of this amazing diversity, some of these incredible stories, and share it with with the Jewish people around uh, around the world, but also uh, non-Jews to help educate people about the diversity of the Jewish people.
0: Meanwhile, you complete your law degree, you're a lawyer, you're a civil rights attorney, and how did you manage to follow both tracks? This is enormously time-consuming. You went to how many communities around the world, you personally?
1: Well, I visited uh, over a hundred different communities, but I visited... uh, The Jewish communities have been in about 31 countries. Um, I spent a lot of time traveling I love traveling it's been a little harder with young kids uh, so uh, so did
0: you put your legal career on hold
1: Well we were doing this I, I took breaks I also took I took a year off uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and traveled the whole year one uh, okay. right after uh, law school right. which was amazing um, and I got to go visit you know communities in dozens of countries and how many how many years did this whole project consume of your life well, I started in 1999, 20 years ago, and the book finally came out in December 2015. Uh, so it took uh, a lot of patience to hang with it over 15, almost 16 years. And in the in the meantime, uh, a lot of other things started happening around the project. I started a nonprofit organization to help some of the uh, very isolated communities uh, to fulfill their Jewish needs and i st- and the nonprofit also has a mission of educating about jewish diversity so as part of that ever What's since it called? it's called scattered among the nations mm-hmm. so ever since 2003 at scatteredamongthenations.org uh, ever since 2003 i've had pretty consistently uh, photo exhibits and and more recently also art exhibits that have traveled around the country help uh, and and at, at jccs and at Uh, synagogues and art galleries and universities to educate about Jewish diversity, showing some of these photographs.
0: You know, it's funny, Brian, I tell my kids all the time, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can have a profession, and you can still have a great hobby. You know, my son loves music, and I tell him you can do both. So here you are, you're a civil rights attorney, but you're also a photographer, and you have your passions, and you're
1: blending both. I'm trying to. Yeah, it's uh, uh, being a, a dad. You know, with young kids, it, it certainly makes the some of the uh, more far-flung traveling uh, difficult. But um, but you've
0: done it now for the book. Yeah, the book is out. Your legacy is here. Yeah, let's s- dive into it. Okay. All right. Let's start with th- uh, because we can't do all thirty of them here in one podcast, we might have to get you to come back. So we'll, we'll do, do a series. A, we'll do a few. Okay. So I have to ask you which one, you know, I'm sure they all moved you tremendously. If you had to pick one or two.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I developed special connections with uh, certain of the communities that where I've maintained relationships till today. Um, the Inca Jews of Peru, and that's not a there's no formal distinction, but I guess you would think of the, the quote Inca Jews as uh, a group of indigenous Peruvians who embraced Judaism as opposed to Ashkenazim or Sephardim who happened to move to Peru. Um, that's a community that was uh, living with some hardship when I visited. How old? Um, the community came about in the 20th century. Uh, in the mid-20th century, it wasn't uh, an ancient lost tribe type of community. Mm-hmm. Um and I was, I was just absolutely blown away by the, the passion and, um, the, uh, of their observance and, and the warmth of their welcome. and. Give us a sense of the landscape. So the community lives in several places. Um, the community started in Cajamarca, which is in the Andes, um, up in, in the north of the country. Uh, and there's a, a, a big hub of the community in Trujillo, which is down on the, in the north coast, uh, not too far from the, uh, the vast desert up there. And, and then there's part of the community down in Lima, and there was uh, some folks in Cusco. So I, I visited um, uh, the community and stayed with them in, in, in each of these places and um, in uh, Trujillo. It was in a neighborhood called Milagros, Mir- Miracles. and uh, Is it agricultural, Brian? What do they do? No, they live in the city and uh, it was in a tough neighborhood. And because the community was devout and refused to work on uh, Shabbat. Shabbat, Jewish holidays, it, they found it difficult to practice in their, their trained professions. So, for example, uh, uh, Agustin Aguilar was a university trained engineer, five years university training. Uh, and when I was there, he was working f- for $86 a month as a substitute teacher, um, trying to support his whole family. Um, because he, he wouldn't work on Shabbat or Jewish holidays, they don't have the idea of reasonable religious accommodation that we have in this country. So uh, it was really a struggle. There were other people that I met who had different types of training who were driving a taxi, uh, not uh, not infrequently being held up at gunpoint or uh, running a small shop where, uh, you know, one uh, guy showed me he had a handmade mezuzah on the door of his shop and it had been ripped off like three or four different times to the point where he had this heavy wire holding it on there. Um, and you so, went through the synagogues? Yeah, so you they built, well, they had a, uh, this community, they didn't have a, a formal synagogue. They they had a, a, a place for prayer in uh, the, one of the, homes of Shai Raza, who was one of the community leaders. And in his home, the the sort of courtyard of his home was set up for prayer with a mehita and a a small ark.
0: And the Torah scroll, exactly the same one we see on Pico Robertson, correct?
1: (laughs) Yeah, although uh, maybe not quite as Grand, you know, not a, a giant. But the Torah, letters, the letters were the same. Oh, the 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 text is very much the same, and I've never seen it observed with greater love. Wow. Um, so you know, it was a community that was really passionate, uh, but was facing some challenges uh, in getting the resources that they needed. They didn't have a real relationship with the Jewish community in Lima. That wasn't too interested in them. So, um, so my organization has worked um, over the last. Uh, not not quite two decades, but, uh, you know, 15, 18 years to, to try to help the community get some support um, because uh, they were having so much difficulty. So, you know, for example, we send them uh, money so they can buy, they can go into uh, down to Lima and buy kosher chicken for uh, Pesach or, you know, kosher wine, things like that that are too expensive for them to ordinarily get. But the biggest thing that we did was they were trying to gain recognition as a Jewish community formally. And um, we helped organize uh, a panel of rabbis recognized by the chief rabbi of Israel to come and uh, provide this recognition to the community. And over 250 people from the community wound up making aliyah to Israel.
0: That's such a sensitive issue to recognize their uh, Allahic Jewishness. Now, I noticed not far from there, you went to visit the jungle Jews of the Amazon yeah in Amazonia and para, wow, I didn't know they had Jews in the jungle.
1: They're Jews in the jungle. They don't call themselves the jungle Jews per se, but uh, they were they, uh, the, the f- one family I visited. How did you hear about them? Um, well i uh, I read when I first started this project in 1999 I read every book every article, every single thing I could find on Jewish diversity. We didn't have, you know, Internet resources that we have today. But, um, you know, there were different books. And I learned about these Moroccan Jews who had come to the Amazon region of Brazil and even over into Peru um, in uh, the 1800s and had come searching black gold or rubber and other jungle products and had set up these synagogues, um, including the one in Belém, which is the longest continuously active synagogue in Brazil, and it's quite magnificent uh, because they had a lot of success. And um, the community has mostly moved to the bigger cities of Manaus and Belém, which are the capitals of those two states, uh, Amazonia and Pará, but uh, they're still Jewish people who live in some of the small villages um, along the Amazon River and its tributaries.
0: You visited them.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, for example, uh, uh, the Hamani family that I stayed with, they lived uh, in Obidos. They lived just uh, 100 feet from the, the river, and they had a general store that uh, people would come in out of the jungle and, and get their uh, basic supplies for living from this Jewish family in that town.
0: And where was the where did they live? What structure... Oh, they had a you know they had a
1: they they weren't like living up in trees or something uh, like that. They lived in a in a in a a small house uh, with a mezuzah on the door, Uh, but uh, and you
0: can feel the jungle atmosphere. Oh
1: yeah, I mean it's surrounded uh, all around by uh, the forest and the Amazon River and um, were these Jews observant as well? They had been historically uh, observant Sephardic style uh, Jews. Um, They had lost a lot of customs over the generations. Um, it was interesting to me what customs sort of survived um, as, as more uh, of a priority to them. For example, uh, kappara, which is not something you would probably see much in L.A., uh, but like every male in the family uh, around uh, Yom Kippur would go out and sacrifice a chicken. Right. Uh, and uh, it, during the atonement period, and so this right. was a, a custom that they were still adhering to, even though they were no longer uh, what did they pray
0: Sh- Shabbat observant. What did they pray?
1: Well, <clears throat> in the uh, in the big cities, they had some magnificent synagogues. Right, but the ones yeah. who
0: were right close to the Amazon, yeah,
1: in the, the they
0: the, would have the, to go into the city on the Yom Kippur.
1: They would they would go in um, on on high holidays and stuff, mm-hmm. which is a long uh, trek. Um, but you know at Previously, there had been enough people in in some of these outpost communities where they had their own, uh, you know, services and things like that. Um, But over time, you know, intermarriage uh, was causing uh, assimilation um, and the members of the community who did not want to assimilate were... You know, their their children were moving to the cities because otherwise they had the choice of either marrying their cousins or, uh, you know, no one. There was nobody. Right. There weren't many people left. So actually, one of the families I stayed with, uh, um, with the the mother and father were cousins.
0: Okay. So I notice uh, you have from um, the country I was born in, Morocco, the Tzadiks' last Berber Jewish protector in Orica Valley.
1: Yes. So Morocco has an extraordinary tradition among both Muslims and the ancient Jewish community there of uh, kind of saint veneration. Uh, in the, the Muslims call him moul, uh, and the Jew, Jewish people obviously call, think of these righteous, special people as a tzaddik. And, and people uh, will make pilgrimages I used to go, yeah, yeah, to this to the to the burial sites right. of these special people, and um, even Moroccans who had moved a lot of Moroccans moved to France, for example, um, hundreds of thousands. They would um, come back to Morocco to visit these Tzadikim and these uh, moul- uh So it was pretty uh, special that in this Eureka Valley, at one time. There had been something like 300 Jewish families. It's a, The Eureka Valley is uh, maybe a couple hours outside of Marrakesh. And so there had been 300 Jewish families, of a very vibrant Jewish community. After the creation of the state of Israel, most of the community had moved to Israel, and and some had gone to France and things. And this one couple remained um behind guarding this tomb of the tzaddik. They didn't want to leave him unattended. Remember the name of the tzaddik? Shlomo ben Hensch. I was there. Were you?
0: I was there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and his wife had passed away. Oh, yeah, okay. And he was still there. And apparently there's a folklore... That the flame for, never dies.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the folklore is fascinating, which is that Shlomo Ben hench had come centuries earlier. He'd come on the back of a donkey, and uh, he was trying to raise money for in Israel, uh, you know, centuries ago, for the Jewish community in in Palestine. And he um, he was bit by a poisonous snake, and he died. But uh, he was rem- he remained alive long enough to um, to be buried. After Shabbat, um, and, like the sun had stopped setting, so that he could arrive and be buried in this spot, and all these and other assorted miracles. So the um, El Fassi family, where you met uh, Hananya, who's the last man uh, in the community, um, the El Fassi family. Have had this shared recurring vision um over the generations of this snake that's blocking their path that tells them they cannot leave. And uh, both Yamuna, the the woman who has since passed away and and El, um, and Han- hananya had had the same dream.
0: It oh. was such a mystical experience. Yeah. Just the drive under the moonlight out of Marrakesh. Oh,
1: spectacular, yeah.
0: Spectacular. The red
1: hills and these crumbling kazbahs and fortresses and, uh, oh, you know, villages. And, so
0: mystical. And yeah. by the time we get there, it was just something
1: magic about the
0: whole experience. And this one man in the middle of nowhere yeah. protecting this grave. And it was, it was pretty emotional, Brian. I remember that night when people ask me, how was your trip to Morocco? I got to tell you, that's, that's, that's what I remember the most. It wasn't the, the fun times in Casablanca. It was those times in the desert when you see a Jew out of nowhere yeah. protecting a grave. So Wow, so cool. There's so many here. It's hard to pick Jewish ostrich barons in outshorn South Africa. Yeah. What is that? Ostrich.
1: Uh, The the Jewish ostrich farmers. So um, Jewish people came from Lithuania and, uh, you know, at the time of the pogroms and things, went a lot of places, including uh, a lot of Jewish people here in America. Um, But a lot of Jewish people uh, from Lithuania went to South Africa and they um, were trying to find places to settle. and And this is in the 19th century, late 19th century. Uh, some had come into the uh, veld, the plains, in the southern part of the country, and were trying to find work. And they wound up uh, peddling ostrich feathers, um, and
0: whatever works.
1: Yeah, whatever works. And uh, they became enormously successful. There was a big boom in the in the early part of the twentieth century, where the uh, ostrich feathers were all the rage and fashion, and these ostrich farmer Jews in in Otsorn, uh became incredibly uh, successful and they built these ostrich palaces with all kinds of imported marble and products from Europe and things like that and built these incredible ostrich palaces in the middle of the plains and and South South Africa and has remain and it has remained for uh, all this time since the 19th century a very devout observant Jewish community synagogues they have a big exhibit uh, uh, to the community in the local museum, um, and even you know when I was there, I was you know still um, observing kashrut. The president of the community was a guy named uh, Jack Class, who was also at the time the world's preeminent ostrich farmer. Yet, uh, I don't know. You know, know I wonder thousands. how
0: many of our readers, our listeners, and readers, mm-hmm. and my friends know that. Jews had this huge business with ostrich. Uh,
1: yeah, I, well, next time you see, you know, ostrich leather bag or something, you, you might find out it came from Otsorn. Uh because over time it wasn't just feathers, it turned into uh, meat, it turned into leather, and even they give, you can take rides on the ostriches. Um, so now, now how far is this
0: community from, is it close to Johannesburg or Cape Town?
1: It's pretty far from uh, both, but it's uh, closer to Cape Town, but it's kind of... We never
0: hear about those South African Jews. There's plenty of South African Jews in L.A., but it's always either Johannesburg or Cape Town. Now you're bringing us a whole other
1: Well, I bet the South African Jews here in L.A. have heard of and Maybe they went there to go, you know, check out the ostrich farms.
0: I'll have to ask Selwyn tonight. Amazing. And then you have the House of Israel in Ghana. Sefwi, we are so.
1: Yeah, the, the, the Jewish community in Sefwi is really fascinating. Um, the Sefwi are a tribe of millions that live in uh, the western region of Ghana along the border of uh, the Ivory Coast, the Cote d'Ivoire. And um, the tribe has long had an identification with Israelites, and and I'm, when I talk about the whole tribe, I'm not talking only about Jewish people. Most of the tribe practice Christianity today, but um, I got to sit with the uh, paramount chief of the tribe as he was telling me about some of these customs that the tribe has always had that are are ancient uh, Jewish customs: uh, Saturday Sabbath, eighth day circumcision. Traditions like Nida, which is uh, family purity, separation during menstrual period, things like that, um, and uh, sometime in in the 70s, um, uh, a leader named Aaron Ahomtre uh, decided that he, he he had a vision and he felt very strongly that the Sehwi people needed to return to their Jewish roots, and he. Um, it is said the folklore around him is that he began performing miracles. Uh, for example, um, he did the the miracle that we read about in the Torah, where uh, you know Moses turns a, a, a snake into a staff or a mm-hmm. staff back into a snake. So apparently, this guy Aaron Homtrey, the folklore is he did something similar to that and blew away the people there in Sehuisui, where he lived at the time, and. Um, over time, he gained followers, and um, the the community began to embrace more traditional Jewish practices. And today they have kind of a, you might think of like a conservative or orthodox style of worship there in the community. Uh, they built a synagogue, Tiferet Israel Synagogue, which is uh, with the help of uh, an American nonprofit called Kulanu, which gave them some money so they could build this synagogue out of the mud bricks. It's a um, kind of a... Uh, I don't know. It's not like what you'd think of as a, like a synagogue here in L.A. It's like one building with a corrugated iron roof, and there's geckos running up the walls, and a light bulb hanging down. This. Oh
0: man, I was there. I had a similar experience. We're driving for hours, on a Friday in Uganda. Uh huh. Literally hours with terrible roads, and after hours, you just get to this tiny little village with brick, you know, uh brick huts. Yeah. Right, and then you go in, and they're singing. You know, yeah, Lechadoji, exactly. with a mechitsa. And there's yeah. the prayer book from Koren, which I have on Pico Robertson. Yeah. And there's one little light bulb yeah. that, by the way, they recently got, which for them was a miracle.
1: Yeah.
0: And and they're praying. Right. We're using our prayer books. Now, they were, what I understand in Uganda, uh, they, they trace
1: it back to someone who converted to Judaism. Yeah, 1919 uh, Sim. It, Mr. Kakungulu, who was an elephant hunter, and he was thumbing his nose at the British, and he thought a really good way to piss the British off was to uh, embrace Judaism. Um, so it, it it started with these kind of uh, interesting roots of the um, Abayudaya community in Uganda. But uh, over time, it's it's a very devout, it's a passionate community. You mentioned they're singing the music of that community. They've actually been like nominated for Grammys and such. It's a seriously it, oh, it's an incredible. Uh, community And some of those leaders of that community of the Bayou Daya have actually been, lived here in L.A., trained at the oh, uh, right. University of Judaism. Yes. Yeah. Yes, G- yes. Gershom yes. Somozu is a rabbi, ordained rabbi. Right, right.
0: The ones I saw were like more observant. Yeah. And they're the ones who were sort of adopted by Rabbi Riskin in Israel. And he's trying to bring them over to give him, I guess, a full official orthodox conversion that will be accepted by the chief. Right? Yeah. So
1: the, yeah, most of the Abayudaya were are converted by a conservative Beit Din from the United States. Uh, but, you know, it, I found in different communities, um, you know, they, they have different goals, uh, Jewishly. Some like the community in Ghana didn't appear to have a, any particular interest in, in Aliyah or anything like that. But this community in Peru that I mentioned earlier was very passionate about trying to reach Israel. Uh, uh, as is a community called the Bnei Menashe that I visited in northeastern India on the border of Myanmar.
0: What blows me away, though, Brian, like
1: maybe more than anything, is just they pretty much were using the same books. Indeed, yeah. Um, I tell this story when I give talks at my exhibits and things about um, I went out to this uh, village. That was so in northeastern India, on the border of Myanmar. It's, it's one of the most isolated parts of uh, of India, but also in one of the most isolated Jewish communities in the world. They're hours and hours from the nearest Jewish community in Calcutta, and it's a, a war zone. It's a drug corridor. It's a, a, a it's under government curfew. It's a very difficult place to live. And here in this region, there's uh, a tribe uh, that feels very passionately that they're descended of the Lost Tribes of Israel, and um, thousands of people in this tribe have embraced Judaism. So I'm visiting this tribe, and they have like 20 synagogues, and uh, all up in the hills, um, in little villages uh, that have uh, a synagogue, and at the time that I had that I visited, in some places we went, we were the first uh, non-locals to ever visit, so we were received like uh, you know, ambassadors of Judaism with great fanfare. And um, one day I had the opportunity to go hours up into the hills to this village called Sazal. And uh, we came, went in on our four by four and we hop out in this little village. And Sazal that day was where um, the, they were performing a special ceremony called Barchot that they had made up, which sounds like Brachot blessings. And we get out in this village and it's all thatch huts. Um, the, the huts are raised on stilts, corrugated iron roofs. Uh, some of them have, and others, the thatch roofs. And um, we went into this hut, um, and uh, the, this man, a 35-year-old man, is um, having his formal conversion into the community uh, with a circumcision. And there were uh, people, uh, you know, men in the hut gathered around as they're going to do this circumcision so that this man and his family uh, can be embraced into the Bnei Menashe, the Jewish community. And outside the hut, the whole village was gathered and playing these songs with drums in the local language, uh, singing about crossing the Red Sea and, and some extraordinary stories that the community tells about how it came about. And so we do this, he, they do the uh, circumcision in the hut and with special prayers and J- Jewish prayers with the Sidur. Um And then the circumcision is done. The guy's sitting on this uh, bed smoking a cigarette. Uh, and um, they ask me, this visitor from out of town, to give him his new Jewish name. Uh, and it was a really daunting moment because at the time I was in my late 20s, I had and done so much in the world here's a guy he's in his mid he's older than me he lives in this very difficult part of the world he's got children he's got a family and i don't know and they're know, treating
0: you like a rabbi
1: yeah and i i know nothing of struggles he has or anything but he, the, here i am to give him his name so i give him the name menashe which is the first name that came to me because they're the name menashe so they pin a kippah on his head uh, a skull skullcap and they throw open the doors of the hut and they say you know the, the sermon, ceremony's done. His name is Menashe, and the whole village of Sazal erupts in this song, wow. "Zim Tovu, um, tov, um, tov, oh, tov. Just like, seriously, it, just like it would be a shul right here down the down the block. So, uh, yeah, quite uh, remarkable, and just like what you're saying, where there's so many of our, our prayers now that are uh, sung in exactly the same way in every corner of the of well. The world.
0: What, what's what's extraordinary is uh, that. They're sung differently, so the melodies are different. The foods are different. The looks is different. The ethnicity is different. Everything is different, really, except for the words. We're using the same books. That's what freaks me out because we haven't seen each other for you know pretty much 19 centuries. So all these tribes that you visited, how often do they get together? Never, and yet they're still reading the same Torah scroll on Saturday morning. Speaking of uh, Torah scrolls, you went to Portugal to visit the mountain Maranos out of hiding. Did they read the same Torah scroll too?
1: Yeah, they did. In fact, we read... I was there for uh, Shavuot. And, you know, you have the Tikkun Leos Shavuot, which is like this. You stay up all night. And that's you know, when the Torah came, it was handed down to us. Right. And so we... They did, you know, in some uh, synagogues, my synagogue up in northern California, for example, uh, will have different teachers or rabbis come in and give seminars and talks, So you stay up studying. But, you know, they didn't have that in this village. So we actually just sat and read the entire Torah in Portuguese around the table going right, which I don't speak Portuguese particularly, so it was challenging for me, but it's kind of similar to Spanish, which I do speak. Were you in so, the mountains? Yeah. So we're in the mountains um, in a place called Belmonte, which is um, the really the first place on the Iberian Peninsula that after the Inquisition, a pre-Inquisition Jewish community emerged from hiding to become a Jewish community again. Which is remarkable that they lived up in the mountains, pretty isolated. And so. And they didn't want to convert. They, they converted superficially. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mentioned I was there on Shavuot. The uh, local Murano, the Jews in hiding there, they would celebrate Shavuot even during the time when they're in hiding, but they called it Quinta Feira de Ascensão, which means Ascension Wednesday. Mm. Not so Jewish sounding. Wow. They so they would they carved crosses in their doorways to show how Catholic they were to the outside world, um, but secretly they continued to observe Jewish customs. They would for make centuries, mats- for for many centuries that's, from that's the Inquisition, fifteen hundred in Portugal until late in the 20th century.
0: Imagine having the talk with your kid when he's yeah. at the right age. You know, that thing you, you've been seeing outside, that's not really who we are. Yeah. We're not the cross, so this yeah. is... Yeah, well, be, they would have seen... This is going to be a long conversation, Morsh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would have seen um, probably... That their family did a few traditions that uh, other people around them didn't do, but maybe it, they, you would have the talk where they'd learn that, that this is really the reason why that they're making uh, this flat uh, unleavened bread in uh, you know the springtime.
0: I could imagine if this was happening like in our modern era. They would have a huge therapy bills of these kids <laughs> feeling like frauds, imposter syndrome. I can't take this anymore. They would right now. They would just I Google what's going who on. I am. Yeah. You know, I have to hide my Jewish identity. Blah blah blah. So, but obviously, they were able to continue it. Yeah, without Prozac, apparently. So. Without Prozac, yeah. exactly. So, wow. This is like I'm like a kid in a candy store, Brian. When I see uh, all these stories. So why don't we just go right to the longest road to Judaism? Yeah, that's
1: so. That's the Bene Menashe India. that I was talking about. Yeah. So you know the that are up on the the border of Myanmar and their journey. I call it the longest road to Judaism because of where they're where they're located and also their their personal story. And you see the story reflected in the faces of the people in this community. So the story of the community is that they're the tribe of Menashe. Um, That at the time of the Assyrian conquest in, you know, seven, what was it, 720 BC, something like that, that they walked out of Israel up through uh, Persia and up into uh, China, Afghanistan, and somehow made it all the way over to Southeast Asia in their journeys across many, many centuries. And um, in, came into Vietnam and through uh, Burma, Myanmar, and finally into this northeastern corner of India, where there are these tribes, the uh, Kuki-Chin-Mizo tribes, that uh, have this long journey in their heritage. And interestingly, the members of these tribes don't necessarily look exactly like the people around them. Some of them look like they could be more like Afghani or Persian than they look uh, Southeast Asian, like a lot of the people in that region. So it's kind of interesting as well. Um, and the um, the tribes across all these centuries maintained their folklore of, you know, that they had walked across the Red Sea. They had songs in their local language. They maintained. Uh, some of the more obscure Torah because they this was pre- rabbinic times so there was no Talmud they maintained some of their more um, obscure Torah traditions like city of refuge uh, is in the Torah we don't do that anymore maybe we should but uh, <laughs> they had a city of refuge they had where you, you 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 have to sacrifice an animal without breaking any bones and eat the entire animal before sunrise things like this so, Definitely pre-Talmud. Yeah. So they they continued to observe some of these uh, traditions for many centuries. That were connected to the temple. That were connected to the temple and connected to ancient Judaism and the Torah. And uh, finally, in the 20th century, um, Christian missionaries came up into the region and they saw uh, the Bible and they recognized um, in the Old Testament some of the stories that they had been hearing that had been passed down for centuries. Um, and they, they saw the names of some of their ancestors, like Menashe, that they called, uh, Manmasi, um, and the ancestors of Menashe that they had always said when they were invoking their ancestors, um, that are listed in the Torah that they had al- always been saying without ever having seen a modern Torah. And so they, um, started returning to Judaism. At first it was interesting because they didn't exactly know how to go about it. So, um, they, they read about this, uh, seven candle candelabra that was in the, uh, temple. And so out of some wood, they put together a menorah, um, and they were lighting it every day. Like maybe they envisioned it would be done in the temple. We only use it on, on Hanukkah, but they were lighting the menorah every day, their handmade little menorah. Um, and they're just trying to figure things out over time. And eventually, um, they connected with a, an Israeli rabbi who uh came and taught them uh, modern uh, Jewish traditions but this was much more recent in the interim they you know had translated the uh, Old Testament into their local languages um, and you know I have a, a Sidur that they made which is all in the local languages that they had translated um, and uh, they started practicing modern Judaism toward the end of the 20th century and they built um, over time, thousands of people are starting to ad- embrace this vision. And how are they today? Uh, incredibly devout. Uh, and, you know, uh, I tell a story, for example, of this one village that I visited that um, they built on uh, the side of a, a hill. And um, they they built this Jewish village up in um, northeastern India where they... they cut down bamboo and gathered mud and things. And they built this whole village, built a synagogue in the middle of the village, the Beth Shalom Synagogue. Um, And uh, this elderly lady uh, came and wanted to be a part of this new Jewish village that they were building, but she couldn't really, she didn't have any money to contribute. She couldn't physically help build any of the homes or anything. Nonetheless, they built her a home alongside theirs. And every day they come and bring her to uh, services three times a day at the synagogue, Shacharit Minchan Mariv. Um, so that she can be a part of the of the community. This is really the way that we're commanded in the Torah to treat widows and orphans. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they they just uh, have a strong sense of the core Jewish values in these in these communities. Now I
0: noticed, Brian, you also went to the lost tribe that found Elijah in Ma- Maharashtra state in India, and I'm curious
1: if these tribes had. Any connections, given that they were in the same country? No, not at all. I mean, totally different part of India, thousands of miles away. The um, And a totally different experience. Totally different history. The B'nai Israel came uh, also from ancient Israel, but their history is, is quite different. They, they're in southwestern India, uh, south of Bombay on the Konkan coast in Maharashtra province. And this, there was a ship that wrecked off the coast many centuries ago. And um, almost everyone died, but seven couples came ashore at a place called Navagone, and they buried their dead in, in a place where there's still a Jewish cemetery to this day. And how long ago was this? Uh, this is, uh, you know, 2,000 or more years ago. And um, wow. they, these seven Jewish couples that survived began this Jewish community of the B'nai Israel. And over the centuries, there, uh, the community grew. There are many uh, synagogues that were built. This is extraordinary. Built.
0: You got the Bnei Israel tribe yeah. in one part of India. You got the Bnei Menashe tribe in another part of India. Yeah. And for centuries and centuries and centuries, they both continue their journey. They have no idea that the other one exists. And yet, after 2,000 years, they're reading the same book. Amazing.
1: Yeah, and uh, hopefully they're, uh, you know, emailing each other now, too.
0: Yeah, Facebook friends. (laughs) Wow. Let's go to Ukraine. Ukraine survivors. I've been to Ukraine in Uman, of course. Yeah. Uh, In Venetia Oblast.
1: Yeah, so I visited um, uh, some of the isolated Jewish communities that were in areas where most American Jews uh, uh, came from along the former Pale of Settlement and in a region where there used to be thousands of shtetls everywhere, little villages, Jewish villages. And uh, I was looking for where are there still Jewish communities in these areas that were so decimated by the Holocaust, by the Cossacks. And um, in the Vinnytsia Oblast, which is um, like seven hours outside of Kiev, there were still some vibrant Jewish communities out in small villages. One I remember uh, fondly was the village of Bershat. Bershat had been um, a place where during the, um, the Holocaust there were 14,000 Jews packed into this little village and today there were about 100 people left when I was there. Um, but what was amazing and very different from some other places, they still had their synagogue in the village that had been there since the 1600s. And it was this pretty unassuming building and uh, somewhat miserable, I have to say. It was, like, very cold I was when I was there, you know, early March, around this time of year. And um, it was... Cold outside, but even colder inside the building, kind of thing. And apparently, in the summer, it's even hotter than it is outside in this in this sort of building. And there were these crumbling, uh, you know, moldering kind of uh, to fi- to f- uh, to fill in that were that were there. And um, they still had the, the the ark, the Torah, and and they would take the Torah home at night to keep it safe. But somehow, the Cossacks, the Nazis, the Communists had all missed this building, and it's still there. And the community is still gathering to pray. Now, because of the communists and so forth, they had been really deprived of Jewish knowledge. But I was able to lead a Shabbat service there. They got um, Shabbat uh, food from the joint distribution community that would come and bring them food. And then, you know, I led this little service in this synagogue in that where Jews had been for centuries, uh, and it was a lot of la la la. Uh But uh, right, well, it, was still, Hasidic. Yeah, it was still an amazing well, experience to be uh, able to. Was that before the Baal Shem Tov started the Hasidic movement? The Baal Shem Tov started the Hasidic the movement, AD... I believe, in around 1700. Exactly. And right. so I visited his hometown of Medji Right. There was, there was one uh, couple that was still there that was, you know. And helping... Hasidic Judaism just comes out of all these yeah. villages
0: in Lithuania and Russia and each village has a name, like right. Lubavitch was one of the... Yeah,
1: so I visited a bunch of towns where there were some famous Hasidim, like Le- Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bar- Bardichev. So right. I visited the synagogue in Bardichev, where they still have bullet holes in the side from the Nazis. Wow, um, Rabbi Nachman. Yeah, yeah, of Bratislav. So I went to the Bratislav, and they had some hamantashen for Purim uh, with this uh, family that was still there. So uh, And it's surviving today just
0: through all the Hasidic communities around the world. So I have to mention uh, Shabbat in Tunisia because there are many Tunisian Jews here in Los Angeles.
1: You brought it up earlier. And from what I understand, Brian, they're still there. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, you know, that was kind of what helped me start on my journey was learning about this amazing community in Jerba. And it did not disappoint uh, when I visited the island. Uh, One thing that was... Especially remarkable, with all of the tension uh, in the Arab world, that there was still this thriving Jewish community there. In, um, Protected by the government. In in yeah in in um, in Jerba. I mean, you know, it, there have been incidents. Uh, since the time I visited there, there was a bombing by al-Qaeda and some other terrible things that have happened. So uh, it's not without incident. But, um, but there was a huge war that they braved. Yeah. And, um, you know, this community has such an incredible history that, you know, they claim it's the oldest, uh, you know, continuously running synagogue in the world, uh, the Griba synagogue there. And How um, many
0: Jews would you estimate? When I
1: was there, it was about a 1,000. I don't know what it is today. Did they invite you for Shabbat? Oh, it was incredible. Uh, uh, you know, I stayed with them, you know, for a couple of weeks, they, um, the Haddad family. Um, it was uh, some of the best food, Jewish food I've ever had a lot in, of in fish. my life. They love fish. Oh, you know, they fish, They have this super lamb. salty... Incredible. The spa, the Harissa. So the, uh, the grandma of the family was wearing the traditional dress of Jerba and had these these uh, incredible, you know, like um, decorations mm-hmm. in her hair and didn't speak any uh, any language that I could connect with her. She only spoke Arabic, but um, she had gold teeth. Um, and so uh, she she was, you know, working in the kitchen with Dolly, the mother of the family who spoke you know, French and such. Uh, but anyway, they're, they're making this food and it comes to their attention through their uh, daughter or slash granddaughter who was, um, uh, could very good in English, uh, that I really wanted, I was really interested in spicy food. I like spicy food. And the grandma said, okay, you know, uh, so she's kind of got this twinkle in her eye as they put together this incredible meal. Um, I'm looking
0: at her picture right now. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so they served me up this meal um of like a amazing you know ground beef uh, uh with um you know, couscous and everything, just spectacular food. And I start eating it, and it's one of the spiciest things I've ever put in my mouth. <laughs> and I, my eyes start tearing. I'm, like, crying. I'm literally crying. And the grandma, this little they grandma. called her bluff. Yeah. This little grandma who doesn't speak any language I could speak to her is laughing so hard she's almost falling on the floor as she watches me weeping, trying to eat this food that I had asked for. It's kind of like, oh, you want spicy, huh? I'll give Let's you spicy. See, uh, <laughs> Uh, did you get pretty
0: good cooperation? Did you have? Did you run into any problems where people didn't want, not want to be
1: photographed or, you know, mm-hmm. on the contrary, uh, I have to say the most life-changing thing for me about this was the way that our Jewish family around the world treated me like a long-lost cousin. Like, you know, bringing me into their homes with such incredible warmth and generosity. Uh, you know, some places I would show up completely unannounced, uh, you know. I actually, I tell a story um, from the House of Israel community that I mentioned in Ghana. I, I had no way of, uh, at the time of connecting or contacting the community, you know. and But I really wanted to go. So I took a flight from the U.S. through Europe over to Accra, which is the capital. This must be, you know, 36 hours of travel or something. And then I get to Accra and I have to take a bus to Kumasi, which is sort of the second city hours up into the to Kumasi then in Kumasi I have to take a, a trotro which is like a like you might think of like a old Volkswagen van but kind of with the doors about to fall off and there's maybe 20 people in it including goats and babies and all kinds of stuff and so we take this trotro way out to the western region in Sekuyoso and all I know is I'm going to Sekuyoso that's it and I get out of the the uh trotro and I put a keepa on my head. I don't always wear one, but I, was, I would wear it when I was visiting communities so that to be easily identified. I put a keep on my head, and within not five minutes, uh, Joseph Nipah says, Shalom, my brother. Welcome to mm-hmm. Sephuyoso. And I stayed with him for three weeks. Wow. So uh, they put me in the best room of the house, the one where there was electricity with a fan blowing on me because um, it was hot. And... Um, I was fed meals from the minute I got there till I left. It was never asked for a thing in return. Um, over the years, I've been able to help the community a little by selling some of their incredible handicrafts that they create, but um, it was really their warmth and generosity treating me like uh, like a son.
0: Uh, how did they feed you in uh, in the Jewish barrio of Venta
1: Prieta, Mexico? Oh, you know, I love. I love Mexican food. Um, they fed me well, so actually that was another amazing situation where I, I showed up completely unannounced. I wanted to go to Venta Prieta, and um, the, I, I get, I take a bus to Pachuco, which is the capital of the Hidalgo state of Mexico. I get out and I get a cab, and I say, "I want to go to Venta Prieta." And he said, "Why do you want to go there?" I said, "Just take me there." So the cab takes me to this, you know, little. Uh, colonization, this little, you know, suburb or village of the this, the capital. And he, where do you want to go? And I said, I don't know. Just leave me in the middle of town. So he, he leaves me. I put on my kippah. I start walking around. I, I walk into a shop and I say, you know where the Jews are in town? And they said, yeah, around the corner, there's some Jews. So I walk around the corner and this little kid, Shmuel, he pulls up. On his bike, with you know clearly brand new bike, very proud of it. He was, I think, about six years old, and he had seat seat hanging down. He was wearing his kippa. He looks up at me, says, "What size is your kippa?" <laughs> Which I have no idea to this day uh, what my the, my kippah size is. But anyway, I wound up going and spending Shabbat with his family. I walk in to the home. It turns out his his, his father's the president of the community, uh, and uh, as soon as I come in, I see the halot out on the counter, you know, just straight out of the oven. Uh, and for dinner, they're serving you know ceviche, uh, mm-hmm. fish. I mean, unbelievable with uh, Mexican flavors. Oh yeah, you had Ukrainian flavors yeah. and Portuguese flavors. Yeah, I'll in take Tunisian Mexican. Flavors. I'll take Mexican flavors over Ukrainian flavors any the day. Of spices. The spices. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But I was, you know, I still so I stayed with them for weeks. You know, just coming in. How large was the Jewish community there? Well, there had been hundreds of people. This is a community that was. Uh, totally created by Jewish people fleeing the Inquisition. The Inquisition made it to the New World, unfortunately, and chased people in Mexico to the point where, even in the 19th century, um, there were people being murdered for being hate crime and with hate crimes against Jewish people. And um, this uh, lady, Maria Trinidad de Giron her father was murdered. A Jewish lady named Maria Trinidad, Mary Trinity. So. She was, uh, in hiding as a Jewish person with a n- name like Mary Trinity, but she, re- she fled when her father was murdered and set up an outpost and called it Venta Prieta, uh, which like dark sail or something. It's like a, it was like, a um, a mining region and, and there's lots of smoke and things. So she sets up this little, uh, outpost to, to feed, uh, people going up to the mines. Yeah. And, uh, it, and it, it sparks a whole Jewish community over time. Everybody in the town of Ventaprieta, hundreds of people, they're all related in some way or another to the Teyes family and the original founder. When I was there, uh, I I got to meet her last surviving granddaughter, Enriqueta Ruth teyes And, and um, it continues to stay? I mean, the kids...
0: The kids stay there. Don't they want to leave the Mexico City? Sure.
1: So you know, definitely, some people leave. Um, How big is
0: it now? Would you estimate?
1: Well, when I was there, it was I think there were still you know a few hundred Jewish people. Um, They had struggled with being welcomed as Jews, you know, into the Mexico City uh, community and by the Orthodox establishment. I think they've now got a lot more ties with the um, the you know the recognized Jewish community in Mexico City, which is enormous Uh, and. Also, uh, Pachuca and Venta Prieta are not as far from Mexico City as they once were, uh, you know, as far in travel time. Right. Um, but, um, you know, when I was there, it was interesting because some people who were trying to uh, integrate with the Mexico City Orthodox establishment were practicing more Orthodox Judaism, mm-hmm. including the leadership of the community. Um, and others were uh, remained more comfortable with a more conservative Uh, uh, Not, you know, conservative, like uh, conservative movement, U.S. style of worship. Um, And uh, so there was some tension in the community about how we're going to wind up. Uh, There were people waking up and, and, you know, uh, putting on tefillin and, um, you know, praying Orthodox. And then there were other people who were more conservative and uh, maybe a little less Observant. observant. Some of them were thinking maybe we'll go to Israel. So um, you know, it's in flux. It's always these are dynamic communities, and every story I'm telling you about the community is, I'm sure, a different story than I would tell about a community if I showed up today and had a different experience. Because the people, it's about my book is about people, and it's always changing. Some of the and people I wonder, in my book have died. Some right. I wonder new- how the internet.
0: Is going to change. You know, it's going to have
1: an impact. What's your take on that? I'm sure the yeah, the internet's having a big impact. First of all, it, we're able to be much closer as a Jewish world than we've ever been before, and um, so that's a great advantage to some of these very isolated communities. Will it communities. lead
0: to a further evaporation <clears throat> of the communities, or is it possible that it might lead to a strengthening? Which, incidentally, I was I meant to ask because there's An interesting parallel dynamic that has happened in the last couple of decades, which is that there's been a movement of spreading Jewish tradition around the world in over 80 countries, like Chabad, where they literally, you know, it's like feet on the ground. So I wonder if they're used as a resource by some of these isolated communities for kosher food, for Jewish rituals, and whether that may help them perpetuate...
1: Yeah, trying. you know, it was interesting, the relationship between Chabad and—excuse me—the hmm. <coughs> relationship between Chabad and some of these communities. Um, some of the communities were were more, um, I think, welcomed by Chabad, more assisted by Chabad. Um, Chabad, for example, was— active in helping some of the communities in Ukraine, um, some of the more recognized communities, some of the communities like the community I described earlier in, in Peru were, uh, Chabad was less interested in, in, in that group mm-hmm. of people because mm-hmm. I guess Chabad is very interested in somebody like me and helping me, right? you know, be, um, as observant as possible in my Jewish practice. Um,
0: but there might be these, some doubts on the
1: uh <coughs> Yeah, I think, think the—look, Chabad does a lot of amazing stuff, and I think maybe sometimes it's like, you know, they have their hands full trying to, you right, know, exactly. dealing with recognized Jewish communities, so let alone some of these less recognized communities. But um, I, I, I hope that um, Chabad will be a resource for some of these really isolated communities where they do have people— on the ground, being welcoming. And certainly Chabad, in a lot of parts of the world, were very welcoming to me. In, uh, okay, he's going to have a
0: glass of water now because he has to clear his throat. I feel bad for you, Brian. Something <laughs> I'm got okay. locked into your throat. You yeah, okay? I'm okay. Yeah, your voice changed there for a minute. <clears throat> okay, we're I'm good. I'm better.
1: Yeah, so uh, I th- anyway, I think uh, Chabad is, I think can be a resource for some of these communities because Chabad is always trying to help people in their... In their Jewish practice. And you're, you, you hope to keep in touch, right? You're keeping in touch with some of these
0: communities. and I do. Pieces. And,
1: you know, I, I have this little nonprofit where I try to provide some assistance to communities if they need it. It's Jewishly, you know, whether it's prayer books or um, uh, helping connect them with other resources, uh, little money to help with high holidays, things like that. So, you know, we're trying to help. Um, but, I'm hoping that some of the, the bigger Jewish organizations will also adopt some of these isolated Jewish communities. Because to me, it's a very exciting opportunity. It's exciting when we learn about uh, tribes of people uh, where thousands of people in some isolated part of the world are really passionate about their Jew, sub, Jewish observant. Passionate. And they're just not yeah. visible. Yeah. yeah. You and know? They're, they're passionate enough to observe Judaism when it's not easy at all to overcome yeah. every obstacle to observe Judaism their Jewish uh beliefs. And so, and you wanted to shine a light on them. I did, and I I still do. I hope I because I think they're a great uh inspiration and also um a great opportunity for the Jewish world. We talk about assimilation, intermarriage, you know, we're our demographics, we're not having enough kids. Well, there are these communities that where actually the Jewish world is growing. Mm. And uh I so I think Uh, We need to keep that in mind and and, and see these communities as great opportunities for the Jewish world. Well, I'm
0: glad you were able to come in and talk about it, Brian. This is great. Thank you. This is like just great storytelling. It's really great to meet you and get a chance to talk about it. We don't often hear. So it's scatteredamongthenations.org. If you're interested in learning more or getting the book or helping out, scatteredamongthenations.org. Brian Schwartz, thank you so much. Thank you so much, David.